Hey, bookworms. Welcome to the Picky Bookworm Podcast. I am so glad you are here. I am the Picky Bookworm, and I love bringing recognition to indie and self-published books through book reviews, proofreading, and podcasting. Every Saturday, I get to talk to a member of the writing community, from book bloggers to authors and even other podcasters like myself. I'll include a link to my website where you can leave a comment with your thoughts on the show or questions for the author that I may not have gotten to. You can also find information on how to sponsor this podcast. Ready? Grab your tea, wine, or laundry, and let's get to it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Picky Bookworm Podcast. I have Tim Cagle. I know you guys have heard me talk about him on other episodes, um, his book, The Unexpected Enemy, I think that's correct, um, is one of the best books that I have read so far this year. I enjoyed it very, very much. And he was so kind to come and chat with me on the podcast. So I am very much looking forward to this and I hope you guys are too. So grab a cup of tea and enjoy. Hi, Tim. How are you? So let's start off first. Give us just a little bit of history behind why you started writing, um, how how you made the transition from being a lawyer to writing and, you know, just kind of let us know a little bit about you. Sure. Uh, I started writing in the 90s. I uh, was a medical malpractice, products liability, wrongful death lawyer, and I had a lot of clients that really suffered some very catastrophic injuries. And writing was basically a way to release because I represented some really, really sad cases, some people whose lives were changed forever. And there was only one way I could see out, and I mean, I sure didn't want to turn to drugs, I didn't want to turn to alcohol, as many of my colleagues did. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to sit and write. And that's what I began to do. But I was working 100 hours a week. I mean, there was a time when the only time I took off for the entire year was Christmas morning. I mean, that's just really, I mean, I'm glad I was busy, but it really didn't leave time for anything else. So I started writing about some of the cases I had and some of the people I had represented. And uh, it just led me to continue to do what I wanted to do with this but I couldn't get, I didn't have the time to bring the books up to publish, publishable standards. So I had to like put it on hold. And then I retired a few years ago and I've been lucky enough to have three books published uh, since 2017. So I'm happy it happened, but I just couldn't do it anyway in a shortcut like I wanted to. Right. So that's where I am now. So I guess if I have to tell the readers anything, it's never, never give up on your dreams. I published my first book at the age of 71. So, wow. you know, there is hope out there. That, that, that's the message I would send. That's, that is amazing. Yeah, and I um, heard you mention that you started writing as kind of an outlet. And they actually recommend for people who are overwhelmed or have life difficulties or anything like that, they recommend that they do journal. So writing yeah. was, was just that, that really great outlet for you. And we got some really great books out of the deal. So I'm going to call it a win-win. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I'll tell you what inspired me. 
My wife Linda had a friend who was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer at 35, and she had just made the five-year survival rate, which they tell me if you make it to five years, there's a very good chance you're going to make it. Like at 80% uh, that will not recur. And consequently, uh, a little bit after the five-year benchmark, she came down and she came to my office. And uh, basically, it was someone, the doctor missed the uh, lump in her breast. He told her it's fibrocystic disease, which is very common for women. And uh, she came down and she died uh, just a few months after I had met with her and when I was going to go through, put her will together again. And she passed away, left a 19-year-old daughter. One of the saddest events I've ever seen. Uh, my wife gave the eulogy. Uh, it was an amazing uh, feat of strength for her to stand up there and do that. She's very close to this other woman. And that was kind of like the inspiration, you know, because there's just so many people out there that are so wrong and just have nowhere to turn. Yeah. And I'm kind of like the last resort. You know, when they come to me, they're in trouble. That's the problem. So. Well, you seem like you're a really kind person. Like I, um, I've met a lot of people on Twitter and a lot of them that I would describe as nice, as I would describe, you know, as compassionate. You, I would describe as kind. And, you know, that, that's, well, thank you. you're welcome. That is not, and that's not something that I would normally, that's not normally a word I would use to describe a lawyer. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Lawyers are typically brusque and to the point and you know let's just get this done we're not gonna sit and talk about our feelings um let's just work on this situation and um you don't strike me as the kind of person that would do that well you know what i tell you there is that side of me uh, uh if you saw me at trial I, i'm a little bit different <laughs> if you saw me at deposition, and if you saw me dealing with somebody yeah i'm a little bit different but i gotta tell you my heart goes out to people who basically, I think what aggravated me the most was the people I couldn't help because the law or the facts were against us. There was nowhere to turn. And they did nothing. They went to see a doctor. They went to a hospital for treatment. And that's the only thing they did. And that just, my sense of justice, really, that got to me. Yeah. Because this, you shouldn't have to go through that just for seeking medical care. And I guess it really kind of did kick in with me. And yeah, uh, kind and lawyer, I'm not sure I've ever heard those two words in the same sentence before, <laughs> so I, I understand. You know, I mean, I, lo I love all the lawyer jokes. I, when I was teaching evidence, I used to tell my class, you know, what's the difference between a lawyer and a Doberman? Or, or what, uh, sorry, bad, bad joke. I, I, I messed up, but the difference between a lawyer, a female lawyer and a pit bull is a uh, mascara. And, you know, uh, some <laughs> nice. of is about, yeah. Uh, and, you know, what's black and brown and looks good on a lawyer, a Doberman. So, you know, I used to share those jokes with them. And, you know what? I lived through that. And I understand why people feel that way. Lawyers are not people that are at the top of your pity list. They're just not. It seems like they have this big problem trying to identify with what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. You know, I'm not a criminal lawyer because there's some people I won't defend. Yeah. No, sir, I won't. I won't sit here and worry about justice for the Boston bomber. I won't do it. I don't care. Yeah. Just, now, 
if I'm the only one on earth who has to take his case, that I'd reevaluate. But I'm not. There's plenty of people out there that do that. And, you know, some of the concepts we have of justice are a little bit archaic, in my opinion. But, hey, that's fine. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I have noticed that you know there is very much a difference between right, wrong, and the law. Oh, there is. You know, there and is. there's you know there's just a lot of different situations where you're like, well, this is just wrong, and you know somebody's like, well, it's the law, and you know, and that you know that does get frustrating, um, and I can definitely see needing an outlet, you know, like writing or like speaking or, you know, motivational speaking or anything like that, just to kind of balance out the, the evil almost that you see in the world. No, you don't. I remember this lady that came to see me. Uh, she had gone in for surgery and she was doing, they were doing a laparoscopy, which means to look inside the abdomen. And while the surgeon was in there, he nicked her iliac artery, and they were having a tough time trying to stop the flow of blood. So they rushed her. They beat the doctor, I swear to God. He was on the golf course. I know that's a cliche, but he really was on the golf course. They had to rush her to a major teaching hospital. She got there, and by that time, there was really not much they could do. So they had to put a graft into her artery. And basically what happened was the graft lost patency every year to 18 months, which means the blood flow was restricted. So she could no longer play with her kids. She couldn't play tennis. She couldn't go for walks with her husband because the artery would just clamp down and she just really could not get any relief. And I checked with all the experts I could find and all of them told me that's an acceptable risk. That's just tough luck. That's just the way it is. And my heart really went out to her because there was no matter what we did, no matter who we got to testify, there was no way to win the case. And there's a lot of cases like that that really, they tie people's hands. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's just an injustice in the system. There's nothing that can be done about it. Yeah. But I have seen some cases that really would make your hair stand on end. I represented this family who, uh, they took their son in. He had a torsion testicle, which essentially means that he died while he was in the womb. And they took him in to have it fixed. While he was in there, the doctor was working with a new resident, never worked together before. The kid tried to dissect out the spermatic artery, and he severed it, cut off the blood supply to the good testicle. And to make a long story even longer, they had to call in a plastic surgeon from one of the leading hospitals to try to anastomose the artery back together. He couldn't do it. The kid left the, the operating room as a eunuch. He basically, his sex was changed on the operating table at eight, 10 months old or whatever he was. It was just a horrible, horrible case. And you know, all the money in the world is not going to make that family home. It's yeah. just not. The kid's life is changed forever. And some of that stuff really got to me. And I said, you know what? I don't know what I can do, but maybe if I'm feeling these things, I can only imagine what the actual client is going through. Yeah. How must they feel knowing that there's nothing that can be done? And you know, you could take people out and put a, give them a vault full of money and it's not going to change the fact that this kid's life is shattered forever. Yeah. It's just he's going to pick up and move on through no fault of his own. But it's that kind of stuff that really got me into this. So, the your book, The Unexpected Enemy, 
was that based on a true story or was that just a conglomeration of different cases that you worked or was it just completely made up? Both. It was based on a couple of events and it's not a true story. I mean, I certainly took some liberties with that. You know, when that started, my wife Linda and I went for infertility treatment and I'm in the waiting room one day at the obstetrician's office and she's getting ready to be in vitro and inseminated. And I had to do my part, of course. And I'm sitting in there and I looked around the waiting room. And there's like 10 guys in there with me, all of different races and ethnic backgrounds. And I thought, you know, hell, listen, I'm not the, I, I don't care what you are or who you are. It doesn't matter to me. But what happens? What would happen if a woman gets the wrong semen? I mean, you know, if you go to your accountant, and you ask him or her to file your tax return and you don't do it right, you can file an amended return. If you go to your mechanic and you ask for tires and you don't get the right ones, you can get new tires. What do you do if you get the wrong semen? And that's, that's a product liability issue that would be unbelievable. And then all the implications that matter from that, what do you do? What do you tell the woman if she gives, gives birth to a child that's not hers during the most intimate moment of her life? Yeah. How would you possibly ever explain that to anyone? And the ideas kind of the ideas kind of came to me, and I said, you know what, I'm going to run with this. And I interviewed some of my friends. I interviewed a few that had gone through in vitro fertilization. And Linda, my wife, was great, and she gave me her input on this. And I just started writing, and then it all came together in the, the way I wanted to put it together. It took me a while, but finally in 2017, that was the second one I got to publish. Um, okay, so tell us a little bit about the other two books. The second, but my second medical legal thriller is called Class of Truth. It's about two lawyers, one black and one white, who were ex-college roommates in Texas in the 1960s, and who actually uh, became lawyers, and they, wound, they reunited in Boston 30 years later against, in a case against the premier heart surgeon in the country. And it was based, it was dedicated to a lot of guys I played football with and a lot of guys that I was in the Army with because I went to college in the 60s through all the civil rights struggles. I, a lot of the events I described in that book, I actually saw or heard or experienced. I mean, the fact that people couldn't drink from the same water fountains, they couldn't use the same bathrooms, uh, the way that there's one scene in there about one guy goes to the hospital and he's told the black guy cannot see anyone but a black doctor on staff and he's bleeding i, I mean i saw that stuff and i i did the worst one a friend of mine died in vietnam and when they shipped him home they wouldn't bury him in the all-white cemetery i thought my god the hate is so bad it survives death how do people get to feel that way i don't understand that i mean you know there's a couple of lines I'm really proud of in that book. Nobody deserves to have any points given to them for who they are, but they sure don't deserve to have any points deducted for who they're not. Yeah. And I just had this idea. I played football with a few, few black kids. I was in the Army with a few. And I, I had some that just, they were some really good friends of mine. I had one black guy that took pity on me. I was a poor kid from Kansas, and I was 21 years old. I went in the Army. He was this really neat guy from Philadelphia. He helped me learn how to dress. I mean, he taught me some stuff. He was just really a neat kind of guy. 
And we talked about a lot of things. And I mean, it really gave me an insight I'd never seen before. And it was just, it was just incredible. And so that book is kind of dedicated to them because my years are going to trial against heart surgeons and people like that. I could kind of see what was happening. And, you know, uh, I, I, I remember some of the, also the other thing in class of two, it's a big thing about they're both musical enthusiasts. And they had this huge argument, country music versus rhythm and blues and soul. And you can imagine they had a big fist fight one night over whether David Ruffin of the Temptations had a better voice than Elvis. Uh, they used to go back and forth, you know, you know, Marvin Gaye, Johnny Cash, this kind of stuff. And it, it's things that I actually engaged in with some of my friends when I was a kid. So that book is kind of dedicated to them. Well, let me tell you, country will never win the argument, in my opinion. <laughs> well, my my husband, it's really, <clears throat> excuse me, my husband is from New York, and it's really funny in our house because I I'm from Oklahoma. <clears throat> I'm so sorry, and you know one of the stereotypes that people think about people from Oklahoma is you have to be a Garth Brooks fan and you have to be a Reba McIntyre fan because they're from Oklahoma and you have to be a country fan because you're from Oklahoma. Yeah. No, I'm not. I've lived here since I was three. I will never be a country fan. It is not my favorite kind of music. I put up with it and I tolerate it because my husband likes it. He is from New York. New York, the stereotype is rap, hip hop, rock, alternative, you know, anything basically that's not country music. That's, all while someone has a knife to your throat. You know. And so it's really funny in our house because, you know, we'll get in the car and I'll have something that's not country playing. He'll get in the car and just change the channel. And so, you know, we just, <clears throat> we get in these discussions and I'm like, country is just not my favorite kind of music. And he's like, well, yeah, but it's mine. And I'm like, we got to, you know, and so we, we've been together. Um, we're, we've been married just over two years and we've been together just over four. So this has been an ongoing struggle. He drives my car. I get in the car and immediately change the station on the radio. <laughs> he gets in the car and immediately changes the station on the radio. And the only compromise really that we have been able to find is he has his presets in the car. I have my presets in the car. And we just, you know, and if there's <clears throat> one of his country songs, if we're in the car and he's playing country and there's one of his country songs that plays that I don't like, I'm within my rights to change the station to something else. Well, you know, and so we, because he, he just really, really, really likes country. I just really, really, really don't. And we have just been looking for years upon years upon years to find that compromise. And I don't think we'll ever find it. it it's tough. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying every country song is great. You know, I went to college in the 60s, and when Elvis came out, I wanted a guitar like most kids wanted a puppy. I mean, I wanted a guitar so bad I couldn't see straight. And then I went through the 60s, 
and rock and music, rock and roll music was just fantastic. I mean, it took off. And then the lovely and talented Lyndon Baines Johnson escalated the troop levels in Vietnam, and then the music turned ugly because the kids did not want to die for some politician. And we went through the Vietnam War, and that was an absolute horrific time in history. And so country changed a little bit. But you know what it is today, why I like country today? especially some artists, and Garth Brooks, great, and Vince Gill and Reba and a few of the other people. But, but the reason, it, it's really old-time rock and roll, a lot of it. I mean, if you listen to Garth sing Ain't Going Down Till the Sun Comes Up, you think of a Don Felder and Joe Walsh from the Eagles. Uh, you, you think of Vince Gill. You think of Chuck Berry and some of the riffs he had. And it was, it, it was just really a fun kind of music until it turned nasty. Because it was just the 60s, especially the late 60s. I mean, I went on active duty in the Army a week after the Tet Offensive. So, I mean, it was the height of the Vietnam War. And it was just a horrible time to be alive. I mean, uh, 50,000 kids died over there. And it was just a really, really awful time. And rock music kind of helped us get through that. But it turned nasty and lousy and, and you know, as, as it went on. Because the kids weren't going to put you up with that. But country today, some of the lyrics are just fantastic. You know, and I mean, listen, I love all kind of music. I, I'm not a real big hip-hop fan, uh, rap fan, some of the other do, punk rock, the heavy metal, that kind of stuff. That doesn't get me. I love lyrics. Yeah. Because as a lawyer, words are the things that matter the most. And in country, you get some, I mean, my favorite lyric is from Leonard Cohen, who says, like a bird on the wire. Like a drunk in a midnight choir. How could you ever have a better lyric than that? A drunk in a midnight choir? My God, I've striven my whole life to be a drunk in a midnight choir since then. Yeah. And I mean, Christopherson singing some things. And the beer I had for breakfast wasn't bad, so I had one more for dessert. I can see this guy in a dirty T-shirt, unshaven, in Nashville, having to go out and walk around and... I woke up Sunday morning with no way to hold my head. It didn't hurt. Good God. That's why when I was 31 years old, right after I passed the bar, I shut my law practice down. I went to Nashville. Spent a couple of years there writing songs. Uh, wrote some songs with this lady who was a great, great songwriter. We, we came close to getting a deal, but it fell through at the end. After a couple of years, I said, you know, uh, I got to make a living again. I mean, this is great, but no, I got to I moved back <laughs> up and uh, I opened my practice again. But that was a great time to just go through that. But everything in country is not great, but I do like a lot of it. And there's some really fabulous songs. I, yeah, I will, I will agree with you that there are some country songs that I enjoy. Countries, country as a genre i i won't say that i like the genre but i will say you know there's a song that comes on the radio that i like that song even though it's country yeah. you know carrie carrie underwood um is from here right. in oklahoma she's fantastic yep. i like yep. you know i don't like all of her songs nope, but she but has but she has a few that i enjoy she... Um, you know, something in the water is probably one of my favorite songs by her yeah. and, you know, and she's from here in Oklahoma and, you know, so I do like some country songs. 
But as a whole, the genre is just not my favorite. Well, as I said, I went to college in the 60s. Country songs at that time were mourning binge drinking and crop failures. I mean, you know, (laughs) it was different. And then Chris Augustin came along and Willie Nelson and Waylon and Johnny Cash. And it was outlaw country, basically. And they put that genre. I mean, Willie Nelson, if you see some of his old pictures, he's clean shaven. He almost looks like somebody you identify with. It's but Willie Nelson, he went to Nashville. They wouldn't listen to him. They wouldn't accept his stuff. The story I heard was Willie was at, um, uh, oh, God, I, I can't remember what the name Tootsie's. And he was so depressed, he got himself into a stupor with a few beers. He went and laid down in the middle of the street. And that's when he knew he'd reached the low point. And somebody advised him, Willie, your stuff is good, but you just got to find a niche for it. So he did. He grew the beard. Uh, he turned 80 years old overnight. I mean, he just to turn into a fun guy. It was a metamorphosis for him. And he and then he put out all his great stuff. And Waylon Jennings, too. And Chris Topperson is the greatest songwriter in history, at least in my opinion. I mean, there's a few others, but he's right up to him. Jimmy Webb, Paul Simon, a few people like that. Just fantastic people. But... You know, the country that we used to know, now a lot of people say that modern country music is kind of bubblegum pop. I mean, I've got two teenage neighbors, two sisters that I've been teaching guitar to for a few years. They love Taylor Swift. They, they, they asked me if I would teach them songs by Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus. And I said, you know what, I'll try, but the closest I would come would be James Taylor and Billy Ray Cyrus. And so they call my music Civil War Campfire Songs now. <laughs> and talking to them, it, it, it's an experience I haven't had in years. I mean, because the age difference, as you can imagine, is so many years. They are absolutely hysterical. We argue with how to form chords. And I would tell them, no, you've got to put your fingers like this to do this. And they would say, no, but what if you could take your finger and do it like this? And I would say, you can't do it like that because of this. And they'd say, well, we want to try it anyhow. And I would say, well, I, I have a few phone calls to make. And they'd say, well, who are you going to call? And I'd say, well, I have to call Eric Clapton and Joe Walsh and a few of the great guitarists that I've known in my life and tell them, all of us have been forming the, these chords wrong for a thousand years. <laughs> so, you know, I know you two have a major breakthrough here. But anyhow, they, I, I've been talking to them for a long time. And the best thing that ever happened to us, I think, that I taught them Taylor Swift's Stay, Stay, Stay. And we wound up doing a Christmas show for the parents. And the parents just loved it because they had never heard that before. And we all did it together. And I took the lyrics from Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs, that 1960 hit, Stay. And so they were going, stay, stay, stay. And I would go, stay just a little bit longer. And we put it together somehow. The more music changes, the more it stays the same. And we just had an absolute ball with that. But it, it was just a new experience. To, but that's the way I keep current, and that's why I really have some fun with those two. So, so back to books. This is a yeah. uh, this is a bookish podcast. Oh, we I we talk. I don't know if you listen to the podcast, um, but we get off on some tangents in this <laughs> podcast. I am telling you, um, 
And, you know, one thing that I would like to mention, those of those people in my generation, you might know Chris Christopherson as Whistler from Blade. That is the same singer because I saw him. I've only ever known him as an actor, but I knew he was a singer back in the day. Um, And the first thing that I ever saw him in was... Um, Christmas in Connecticut. It was one of those lifetime silly little movies that I saw as a kid and has never been able to find it since. I haven't been able to watch it like ever since then, but I remember that movie and I remember Chris Christopherson being in that movie and how much I just loved his name. Oh, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard his music. Like, I, I honestly don't think I have, unless it's snuck in on my husband's radio. Yeah. Um, but I have always just loved his name. And when I found out that he was in the Blade movies, um, I, you know, I just kind of had to watch him for that. Because I knew that he was a good actor, and I knew that that was that he was just going to be fantastic, and of course he was. Um, I don't know if you know there, the Blade trilogy is um, based on Marvel comics of a, a vampire hunter. I think, yeah, I um, think so. Yeah. And a couple of, fun, couple of fun facts about him: you know, Christopherson was an army captain. He was a ranger. He was a Rhodes Scholar from, uh, I think, Pomona College in California. He was an English literature major. That's why he comes up with those lyrics that just grab you by the soul and shake you. I mean, the greatest line of his I've ever loved was, the loving was easy, it's the living that's hard. And when you stop and think about that, I mean, one of the the songs he wrote is called The Pilgrim, and he's talks about he's a poet, he's a pilgrim, he's a pirate, he's a pusher, he's a pilgrim and a preacher and a problem when he's stoned. He's a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction, taking every wrong direction on his lonely way back home. I've known guys like that. I mean, I can see them now. But I mean, he was just unbelievable. And he went to Nashville, met Johnny Cash, resigned his commission. He was supposed to teach at West Point. Resigned his commission in the Army, wound up getting divorced, worked as a janitor at Capitol Records until he got his big break. And the folklore I heard is this. Christopherson was a helicopter pilot. He landed, he, he was in the National Guard on the weekends, I think, when he was in Nashville. He rented a helicopter, flew it to Johnny Cash's ranch, landed in the backyard, got out with a cassette tape in one hand and a beer in the other and said, John, I got your next big hit for you. It was Sunday morning coming down, Song of the Year 1970. Now, whether that, I've heard uh, rumors of that, it didn't happen. Uh, I don't know whether it happened or not, but that's the folklore. He's he's really quite a guy, you're right. But you're right. Unless you're my generation, you probably wouldn't know him at all. Well, I just, yeah, I just thought that I would, you know, point out to the younger generation that is the same person that we are talking about. Yeah. Um, so the, and I he love his. And in the star is born too. And I love his, his accent is probably one of the greatest country accents I've ever heard. 
He's just fantastic. So, back to... I know, we've been talking about all kinds of stuff for 30 minutes already. I could, I could even give you my favorite Willie Nelson story. Well, there you go. I Knock, give you in one second. Knock us out. Willie Nelson, he tells this. He said the worst beating he ever got in his life was from, I think, his second or third wife. He said he came in drunk one night. I mean, he was 17 sheets to the wind, and he was so blotted, he just plopped into bed. And she was so fed up with him. When he got up in the morning, he said he couldn't move. Something had happened. And all of a sudden, he felt he was being beaten. And he couldn't figure out what it was. And the beating went on and on and on. And finally, when he finally was able to get up, he had to tear the sheets away to get out of it. His wife had sewn him into the sheets and the sheets into the mattress and taken a broom and beaten the hell out of him with it for like 20 minutes. He said he couldn't move. He said he had to rip the sheets apart and get up because she had done such a number on him and then she left him. Now, if that's not the background of a country songwriter, I don't know what it is. Uh, you know? Yeah. I mean, that, that's my idea of a country Wow. Yeah, you know, and and it's it's really funny that we're talking that we're spending so much time talking about country music. This this might actually be a podcast episode my husband will listen to. <laughs> because most because most of the time most of the time we talk about books and we talk about movies and I don't think that that any episode so far has moved over into music you know my music I I like music and I enjoy music but music for me is is a background to something else you know I I will listen to music while reading or listen to music while crocheting or you know so for me music is is the background you know it's not I don't just play music and sit and listen to music that's just not not my thing you know I will I will sit and read a book in absolute silence yeah but you know so I I don't think that we have we have had a, a podcast episode that has centered around music yet you know we've had we had one that centered almost completely around movies and yeah. we had one that centered almost completely around uh, Stephen King's Dark Tower series yeah um you know so I don't think we've had one that centered really around music yet so this is really interesting I may actually well, get my husband to listen to this episode we'll see I'll tell you, I can't, I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, what on earth is a malpractice lawyer from Boston doing writing a book about Nashville songwriters who are really Texans? And I always tell them the same things. People love books about goddess women, hot guys, and sizzling music, but I guarantee you they would do a snore down into their salad bowl if I wrote a book about hearsay. So that's why. And people look and say, I understand. Absolutely. And they, and they always tell you, write what you know. You know, if you're writing yeah. if you're writing books, you know, and that's and there's there's two sides to that coin. If you're writing about, 
you know, if you have a setting that is real life, such as Nashville, such as Texas, such as Boston, write what you know. You know, right. even even Stephen King, Stephen King doesn't set books in Texas. No. Nope. He sets books in Maine. That's where he's from. He That's does. what he he's knows. Yeah, you're right. And... You know, now I understand the the other side of that coin is, you know, you hear the argument for, well, what if you're writing a fantasy book? Yeah, exactly. Well, in a fantasy book, yeah, you kind of have to make some stuff up. That's going to happen. Um, you know, but if you're writing about, you know, real life things, write what you know, you know, take that, that background that you have and put those real experiences into your story. And they are going to make the story more real and more enjoyable. Absolutely. For example, <laughs> I started, did not finish. I could not finish this book. Um, and I don't know if you have listened to other podcast episodes. When I bash a book and when I complain about a book and when I say a book is truly horrible I don't list the title of the author I'm, I'm always very careful about that because something that I may not enjoy somebody else might exactly yeah and so I very. so I don't usually you know name the titles <laughs> this this book oh my god I got through I think about Two, two chapters, maybe three, because I kept hoping it would get better. Yeah. And it was set during the time after Jesus' death and, and resurrection and ascension. And it was called The Holy Conspiracy, and it was based around one of Jesus' brothers. <clears throat> now, that's fine. I, I actually, I was aware that Jesus had brothers. I was aware that he had sisters. He had tons of siblings. Now, the problem that I had with this book was apparently Jesus left behind a pregnant widow, which I I just kind of feel that if he had, they, they would have said something about that in the Bible. Yeah, you would have thought. You know, you, you would have thought something about that would have ended up somewhere. And yeah. so the the problem that I had with the book was you could tell that the author had done no research yeah. at all into Christianity, even in general. They, I mean, the the author had put stuff in from like Hinduism. And from, like all kinds of stuff. And I, I couldn't do it. I'm like, it's one of those, right, either write what you know or do your research. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I was lucky. My career, I had done the research for a lot of years on the stuff that I wrote. And I really didn't have to research. I had to do some. Because obviously I'm not trained medically or whatever. Right. But so I had to do the research in the particular part, but all the court scenes and all of that stuff, yeah, I've lived that many times over. So I know what you mean. And and they say, you know, people 
said, well, how do you do the research? And it's, you, you just, you can't just fake it. You can't make it up. And some authors do, you're right. Yeah. And it really ruins it for you. It does. It, it really does. If you can find something you didn't know beforehand, I think a lot of times that helps make a book worthwhile. Well, and, you know, I just finished, um, well, I can't say I just finished. I just reviewed, finally, um, a book that I had finished about a week ago um, that, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry to say, Tim, might have supplanted your book as my favorite of the year. I'm so sorry. It's, it's, <laughs> it's called The Good Sister by Sally Hepworth. And it was so good. It, one of the characters, she was my, just my absolute favorite character. I loved her so much. You could tell they don't ever, they don't ever outright specify, but you can tell by some of the things that she goes through that she's on the spectrum. Yeah. She's, she's neurodivergent in, in some way. And she was just such a fantastically written character. So fantastic. And I, you could tell that either the author is autistic herself, which is entirely oh. possible, has an autistic family member, yes. or did her research. Exactly. One, one of those three things. Because she, Fern, in the, the autistic sister, she thrives on routine, you know, and she says things in the book like, you know, my sister told me to always try to answer questions. Well, so-and-so didn't ask me a question, so I say nothing. And, you know, and so it's that, you know, I have learned how to do life this way and... This is how life is going to be. This is how I'm going to live my life. And she, you know, and over the course of the book, through her relationship with one of the other characters, she learns to, to be a little bit more flexible and to learn how to navigate those unfamiliar situations in you know that it's just absolutely amazing and oh, i you know through through a fiction book i learned so much about autism and being on the spectrum and just those experiences because she you know she wrote it from first person and so it was you were inside her head yeah. as she was going through these experiences and it just, it's, it gives me shivers just thinking about it because, well, I mean, she was just such an amazing mean. character. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you don't have the experience, there's no substitute for research. You absolutely have to do it because you have to put the reader in that character's mind. Yeah. And I don't think you can do it. I know you can't if you just kind of make it up as you go along. That doesn't work. So I'm with you 100%. Yeah. You know, and, and I do, and I am going to specify again, especially for the listeners. I know some of you are, are indie authors. It's, n it's not the same thing for a fantasy book. It's, it's just right. not. Fantasy books, they are meant to be made up. You are 
absolutely within your rights to just, you know, if you want your main yep. character to be half fairy, half orc, you knock yourself yep. out. It is. Absolutely. That is perfectly fine. You know, but if you're writing real life books, such as The Good right. Sister, you know, there is just no substitute for your own knowledge and your own experiences and your own and the research that you've done and, um, you know, interviews that you've had with people and all of that. There's just no substitute for that because you create much more real and much more relatable characters. You know, your characters in, in Unexpected Enemy were just amazing. Um, well, one I, of, I've been there with those people. I mean, you know, they say that sometimes as an author, when you uh, know the characters so well that you can anticipate, that's what I was trying to do because I've been in David Whitney's spot. I, I've never been in Lee Harlow's spot, but I certainly have been in Erica Payne's slot. And with, so the back and forth between the two lawyers, that was the kind of the easy part. But the, uh, the Lee Harlow, the doctor that goes through all of this and everything, I mean, that, was, that one was a tough one. But fortunately, over the years, I know people are shocked, but I actually have a couple of doctor friends. You know, uh, Linda, before she retired, she was a vice president of one of the leading teaching hospitals in the Boston area. And so you can imagine as a plaintiff's lawyer what a big hit I was at the Christmas party <laughs> weeks ago. It's <laughs> all the doctors. I mean, it was just, they, some of them would stand on the other side of the room and just like try to do anything to avoid me. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm kind of used to it. <laughs> well, and, you know, there's, you know, there's a difference between real life and the courtroom. Yeah, you know, exactly. there's, and, and you have to, you know, I, I would think at least that you would have to learn how to compartmentalize those two spaces in your life and, and learn how not to bring your work home. And, you know, well, yes. I, you know, I fight against doctors, so I'm not going to be friends with doctors. And, you know, that's, you know, there's still people. <laughs> they, well, they are. You know, I used to tell the doctors, listen, I should be the best friend you have. Don't you understand? I can't take a malpractice case unless I've got one of your brethren or sister telling me that the defendant did something wrong. I can't just say they did. I have to have an expert witness from your specialty. So if I can't find one, I can't bring a case. And a lot of them would look at me and say, oh, okay. Because they think you can just sue any doctor for any reason. You can't. It'll be thrown out of court. Yeah. The rules are very stringent on that, you know. Yeah. But you're right. A lot of people, no love for lawyers. So when you were writing Unexpected Enemy, who was your favorite character to write? Erica Payne. Okay. Yeah. I yeah, Erica. I get that. She yeah. she was There's definitely she was definitely a bulldog. <laughs> I gotta tell you though, the biggest reason you know, Linda is really my inspiration for a lot of things. And uh, as I say, Linda was a vice president, a senior vice president of one of the leading teaching hospitals. She used to go to trustee meetings and board of directors meetings, and she would be the only woman there. And she would come home sometime and talk to me about, you know, all these guys and all the power trips that they were on. Uh, sometimes it was tough for her to get a word in. And I used to tell her, I know exactly what you're going through, but keep, keep fighting because you will be heard at some point. And so when I hear today of all the things that are going on, especially with women in the industry and 
and women trying to have a voice and women having a seat at the table. I totally can understand that. I mean, because, you know, guys for a long time have really just thought that they were the end all and be all. And now it's coming around. No, they're not. There's women out there, too, that deserve to be heard. And so I sympathize with us. You know, one of the greatest quotes I ever heard came from Ann Richards, who was a former governor of Texas, who I'm not a fan of, but she said, Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did, except she did it backwards and in high heels. (laughs) So you're telling me that women don't deserve to have a seat at the table? No, they do. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's hard to be a woman in the world sometimes. I you know, and I I am blessed enough right now to, you know, I work for a company that the CEO, the CFO, the COO, and I wanna say a lot of the board members are women. Yeah. And, you know, and our CEO right now, actually, she started 40-something years ago, 43 years ago, I think, as a counselor and just, you know, kept working for the same company and and made her way up to to CEO eventually. And, you know, and so my company is very equal in a lot of ways. Um, you know, and so I'm, I'm very blessed to, to have that experience and to feel like I have a voice, but at this, but at this really changed, you know, when I first started practicing law, it was a rarity to have a woman as a lawyer. I mean, it just wasn't done. And when I finished, when I retired from teaching at the law school, half of my classes in evidence were women. So there was a major transition. Yeah. Over the late years, you know, but you're absolutely right. It's yeah. I mean, it's just it's sometimes it's just hard to be a woman, um, and you know. But at the same time, That's what you know, Tammy we. Wynette said. You what? That's what Tammy Wynette said. <laughs> sometimes it's really hard to be you know, a woman. It's, you know, it's it just. Right. Sometimes it just really is, but you know, if you can, if you can find those people and if you can find your tribe and you know feel like your voice is heard um you know regardless of your gender and you know we have um a lot of people on twitter especially um that you know are all sorts of things you know we have you know and you know there's there's just really no way these days to to judge, no. you know, somebody's, somebody's qualifications or somebody's abilities, you know, because, you know, we have, you know, we have lesbian, we have queer, we have gay, we have, you know, pan and, you know, all just all sorts of people across the entire spectrum of humanity. And, you know, so yeah, there's, there's really just no way to, to judge somebody's abilities Based solely on their gender, like it used to be. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, Okay, so we have about 10 minutes left. Let's talk about, do you read, I know you write, but do you read books, and what are you reading currently? I just finished two um, 
uh, a friend of mine named Andrea Rendon is a Texan, and uh, she has written a series called Strings, and it's about a, starts in. Actually, the backdrop is in World War II and how a Swiss family and its generation moves forward throughout the years. And I just finished uh, the second and third books on that. And that's very, very well done. Also has music as a backdrop. Uh, one of the lead characters is uh, she plays the violin. She's a concert uh, violinist. And uh, I always said that, you know, Andrea is one of the few people I can discuss Paganini and Garth Brooks in the same breath with. You know? So we got that connection over there. And then there's a lady in uh, Arizona named Dane McCaslin. I just reviewed her book, and it's a little bit different. It's called Doggone Dead, and it's about two women who are retired and who uh, are kind of solving a, a, kind of a tongue-in-cheek, lighthearted uh, comedy about two women who solve a murder. And I just finished that one, and it was a very, very well done, too. So yeah. those are the two things that I've read recently. My, yeah, I think my, my friend Tiffany, um, on Twitter would, would really enjoy that. Um, they're called, um, cozy mysteries. I exactly. think, is, I think is what she calls them is they're just, you know, kind of that, that literary comfort food of, of books that yeah. they're just, they're... Yeah, these two women mm -hmm. form a dog sitting service and some of the scenes she describes are really, really funny. Well done. So yes. And what is, what is the name of that book? It's called Doggone Dead. Doggone Dead. Okay. D-O-G-G-O-N-E, Dead, D-E-A-D. Okay. And who's the author on that one? Dane McCaslin. Okay. She's in Arizona. I think it's Phoenix, but I'm not sure. Okay. I will, yeah, I just, um, I wanted to clarify that in case Tiffany listens um, yes. and can get the name of that book because I know that does sound like something that she would really enjoy. Um, yes. So what is what is your favorite genre to read? Uh, I grew up with thrillers too. I mean, I loved Robin Cook. I mean, uh, I tried to, anytime anybody ever compared me to him, I always took that as an extreme compliment because I thought his medical scenes were so well done and the way he put it together. Uh, my understanding was he said he read 125 mystery novels before he started writing. And that, talk about a great endorsement as to how to get into this. Uh, I like Grisham very much. I think he's very well done. His experience is significantly different from mine. Uh, but, you know, I can understand some of the things he has come up with. Tom Clancy, I love his stuff. Robert Ludlum was absolutely one of my favorite authors. But I used to feel exhausted when I felt when I got done with one of his books. I'd, sometimes I would have to put him down and say, "I can't read anymore. It hurts too much." I mean, that's how powerful his words were. But that he was—he just did a great job on that kind of stuff. Mario Puzo, who wrote *The Godfather*, one of my favorite books of all times. I mean, the way he describes the characters—I've known some of those people too. I when I when I was practicing, I was. Uh, in the, with two Sicilian lawyers, and so uh, I've been German myself with a little Irish background. They used to call me the consigliere after Tom Hagen from The Godfather, and so we used to have a few jokes about that. But his his writing was just absolutely fantastic the way he put that together, especially his screenplays. So you so basically you read and write in the same genre. 
Uh, most of the time, yeah. yeah. The, the uh, Whispers from the Silence was my first book. That's the one about country music. I wrote that one for myself. I felt like I, I, I wanted to treat myself with that. So I said, you know what? I want to write this the way I think it should come out. So I did that one. But the thrillers are the ones that I really got into. I mean, I could see faces of people I've known, lawyers I've dealt with, all kinds of stuff. And that just really helped spur me on with that. I don't know. Although I've got two works in progress right now. I've got one about a 70s, 80s band that reunites after their business careers are in their twilight. They get together over a startling event. And the lead singer in the band and the lead songwriter is a woman who got cheated out of uh, a major career with a major star. And she turns out to be a Marine Corps general. So that's another one. And they go back and have a reuniting time. And then the other one I've got is about a Vietnam veteran who's a plastic surgeon who gets accused of identity theft and murder. And his whole life unravels and it's based on a lost love affair when he was a 17-year-old kid. And so I've got those two that are keeping me going right now, and that's about it. So okay. rather, other than that, I'm just sort of hanging out and not having to worry about going to work anymore, which is really a treat. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that myself. Um, so where can we find your books? Are you on okay. Amazon? They're at Amazon, they're at Barnes & Noble, uh, <clears throat> they're at bookstores. It, you know, just basically wherever you find great books, Amazon, I've, I've got links for that, and the Barnes & Noble, too. Uh, the, uh, the the best place probably is Amazon. I think, you know, it's mm -hmm. everything is can be shipped so fast, and it's going to arrive in a day or two. Yeah. So that's probably about the best one. I mean, you know, Amazon's got a market on about everything in life today, yeah. and books are no different, you know. <laughs> So yep, that's I get that. where I get the best recommendation. I get a bunch of reviews there. So. Okay, okay, awesome. Um, okay, so we do not have very much time left. My my little recorder is about to turn off. So thank you so much for visiting with me today. It was an absolute blast. I, I'm so glad that you are feeling better. Um, I, I forgot to mention to everybody earlier that you had... Um, kind of a little flu thing going on a couple yep. of days ago, and um, hey, at least it wasn't COVID. We, <laughs> yeah, okay. and we, you know, and we almost had to postpone. So I, I'm very, very glad that you were feeling better and that we got a chance I to talk too. today. I wouldn't have missed it. This is great. In fact, I think that's a Ronnie Millsap song. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. <laughs> Wild horses. Um, yes. Okay, so thank you again so much for visiting with us today. I am going to say bye, and because I got to get this stopped and get it processed and uploaded and everything. And thank you again so much. This was an absolute you, blast. Really we we are going to have to we're going to have to reschedule um, or schedule another talk at at some point. So it, this was a blast. You tell your husband to put some drive in his cup. <laughs> I will do that. Talk talk to you soon. All right. Take okay. Care. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye.